Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you ask them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. We're in a great hall with a wooden floor and high ceilings. It's dark, except for candlelight. The air smells of incense and sheepskin rugs. Before you are a group of men in traditional costume. They wear the sikh, a tall brown cap, and tanura, a long robe that lifts out wide as the men begin spinning, whirling. After fasting all day, the men now propel themselves in circles, spinning, while meditating to the music of the ney, a long reed flute, for an hour. It's exhausting, but always ultimately enlightening. The music and dance focus their entire beings on the divine. Through this dance, the soul is destroyed and resurrected, and the dancers become closer to God. A secret turning in us makes the universe turn. Head unaware of feet, and feet head. Neither cares. They keep turning. I said these words over 750 years ago. These dancers are my followers. The order of the Mevlevi, the whirling dervishes. Who am I? A preacher, scholar, a mystic. I have many names. Muhammad Jalal Eldin al-Rumi. Some would go on to call me Maulana, meaning our master. But most of you know me as the poet Rumi. This is the story of his life, as he tells it. I was born in 1207, in a small town called Vakhsh, on the eastern edge of the Muslim world, in what is now Tajikistan. When I was born, we were under the Khwarezmian Empire. But in the years that followed, another power would invade the region and destroy all that I knew and send my family on an epic journey. I am Muslim, and I grew up surrounded by Muslims. But there were Zoroastrians and even Buddhists there too. It was a place teeming with different cultures and rituals. My father, like his father before him, was an Islamic preacher and an expert in Sharia law. He wrote legal opinions, known as fatwas. He was one of the most respected Hanafi scholars and theologians of his day. As a child, I thought he knew everything. In fact, he was known as the king of the clerics. That was a name his father gave to himself, after being inspired by a dream he'd had. He signed his fatwas with that name, 
but some local authorities crossed it out. My father, Baha Valad, was also influenced by Sufism, the mystical movement of Islam. Sufism is all about witnessing God, the love of God over the fear of God. I was always a bit nervous as a child. When I was about five, I began to have mystical experiences. I could, well, I could see angels. I don't know how else to describe it. These visions would come to me, but I must say they were not pleasant. They upset me. I would get agitated. But my father reassured me that this was a good thing. It was a sign that I was blessed. My father meant the world to me, and I trusted he was right. From an early age, I hoped, with his guidance, to one day follow in his footsteps. And believe me, there were a lot of steps to travel. My parents had heard that Genghis Khan and his Mongol army were invading Central Asia. They believed it was only a matter of time before they moved in on the Khrezmian Empire. So my parents decided to flee. That's one account. But according to another, his family left their home because his father had had a political dispute with the local authorities. Another says that he wanted to make the pilgrimage to Mecca. Whether for fear of their lives or for a promise of a new one, Rumi's father set his family on an epic journey, lasting nearly 20 years. Our family had lived there for generations. It was not an easy decision to go, but it was a wise one. My father told me that this didn't have to simply be a crisis. It could be an opportunity. We would make the pilgrimage to Mecca, and he would teach me matters like Sharia law as we'd journey through the Muslim world. But first, we had to escape. Father, what is happening? Are they coming to get us, Father, please? No, I'm scared. Father, please. We left our home fearing for our lives. We saw death and despair. We saw the worst of humanity. Not everyone completes their journey. Not every immigrant is welcome. Not everyone who seeks refuge receives it. This is how I learned nothing in this world is permanent. One day you leave your home, the next day you may not have one to return to. We traveled as a caravan. My mother and father, my brother and me, along with my half-siblings, and a few dozen, or maybe it was a few hundred, of my father's disciples. We began a journey that would stretch 2,500 miles. That's a hard number to comprehend. So how about this? We were on the move for nearly 20 years. First, we traveled to Samarkand, in what is now Uzbekistan. Coming from our small town, this was a brand new world. The mass of people, the constant noise, the bazaar with its luxuries imported from far away. Silk, brass, and walnuts. The city was so full of life. And poetry. A new kind of Persian poetry that was unlike 
classical poetry. We spoke Persian, of course, but poetry was still a, a foreign language to me. I was too young to grasp it. But many years later, I wrote a poem about a slave girl whose lost love was in Samarkand. Her pulse felt stable to his gnawing hand until he asked the girl of Samarkand. But as exciting as it was, Samarkand was the site of a terrifying incident. Shortly after we arrived, the Karezmi soldiers surrounded the city walls and laid siege to Samarkand. For three days, they took everyone captive and looted the city. But as much as this scared me, it reinforced my belief that God would protect me. My family stayed in Samarkand for four years before we decided to leave when the Mongol armies approached. Through the terror and the hardships of our journey, from the eastern to the western edge of the Muslim world, I also had enriching experiences. I witnessed a patchwork of different cultures as we passed through many villages and encountered people who spoke Turkish, Arabic, Greek. I met more Muslims, Jews, Christians, Zoroastrians. The camel caravan got on the move again around 1216 in the direction of Mecca, the birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad and holy city of Islam. Every Muslim must make this journey at least once in their lifetime. We spent a month in Baghdad and then traveled south to Mecca for the Hajj when I was about 10. We traveled through Damascus and eastern Turkey, meeting scholars and mystics along the way. When Rumi was about 14, his family learned that the Mongols had taken the Balkh region where he grew up. They could never go home now. As the Mongol army continued west, so did Rumi and his family. My entire youth was spent on the move. No matter what happened to me for the rest of my life, what wisdom I gained, I would always see the world through the eyes of a refugee. Passing through these places, I gained an understanding that this world is fleeting. I was a migrant geographically but also spiritually. I understood the pain and growth that comes from being on a journey to find where you need to be. There are a thousand ways to kneel and kiss the ground. There are a thousand ways to go home again. So many of my early experiences would have an influence on my poetry later in my life. During our long travels, I was always by my father's side. He was not just my father, but my teacher. He was my everything. He eclipsed the sun, and I was happy to walk in his shadow. And through him, I met someone who would stir my soul forever. When we were in the northern Iranian city of Nishapur, my father took me with him to meet the great mystic Persian poet, Atar. As he saw my father walking ahead of me, he said, Here comes a sea, followed by an ocean. 
He gave me a gift that I would treasure, his Asronama, a mystical poem about how the soul is entangled in the material world. While the idea that the master of Persian mystical poetry would recognize his successor is disputed by some scholars, others will say this encounter was a defining moment in Rumi's life and would have a tremendous impact on his work. I had left my old home a boy, but I arrived in my new home a man. After many years of traveling, we reached Karaman in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey, where we finally settled. We had started the journey running from certain death from the Mongol army. But it was in our new home that death caught up to us. My mother died in Karaman. As large a place as my father occupied in my mind, my mother occupied my heart. And before I could heal, my brother died as well. How could I know this melancholy would make me so crazy? Make of my heart a hell, of my two eyes raging rivers. I would carry this heartbreak with me all my life. But I would also learn that wherever you are and whatever you do, be in love. I was around 18 when I married Gohar Khatun, and we had two sons, Aladdin Shalabi and Baha Eddin. A few years later, my father was invited to teach in the city of Konya, and I followed with my family. Konya was one of the most energetic and diverse places I had ever been to. It was a hub of Persian and Arabic literature. Islamic sciences and Greek philosophy. In the span of just a few steps, you could see Muslims, Christians, and Jews worshipping side by side. Yes, with so many different people, there were conflicts. But it takes many different voices to achieve harmony. My father became the head of a theological college, and I continued to study under him. And then, two years later, he died. My father, the man who taught me everything, was gone. <laughs> my parents were my whole world. We had traveled thousands of miles together. But now I had nobody to guide me. What is the right path for me? But I was learning. You have to keep breaking your heart until it opens. After my father died, I was asked to take his place and become a Molvi, a doctor of Islamic lore. But I didn't want the position. I wasn't ready. I had to say no. This far into the story, you're probably thinking, this is Rumi, the great poet, right? So why isn't he writing any poems yet? When does he get to things like this? The minute I heard my first love story, I started looking for you not knowing how blind that was. Lovers don't finally meet somewhere. They're in each other all along. At 24, he didn't even know that a poet was what he was meant to be. My father had been a great influence, 
but he had little interest in poetry. We didn't talk about such things. We debated fatwas. My father had arranged for a new tutor to carry on my studies after his death. One of his former students, Borhan Udin, became my new mentor. He was a visionary mystic. He taught me rituals, inspirational wisdom, and the deep secrets of the Sufis. I could feel that I was beginning a kind of transformation. I was starting to see the world differently. He took me on many intense journeys. I was isolated from the world and immersed in meditation. Each of these journeys lasted for 40 days. And when I had reached a certain point in my enlightenment, Borhan Odin asked me to go to Syria to continue my studies. Oh, I wish you could have seen Syria back then. It was an era of enlightenment. It was a center for culture and Arabic literature. Education was a top priority, as well as science and medicine. I studied the Quran. I gained insight on the Hanafi legal system of Sunni Islam. I learned about the sciences of our time and was introduced to Arabic poetry. I spent five years in Syria, finishing my religious education before returning to Konya to begin preaching. I keep telling you about all the people and experiences around me that had influence on me. But make no mistake, the greatest influence on me, without question, greater than Burhan, greater than my travels, greater even than my father, was the Quran. It is the word of God. And it is always with me. When I returned to Konya, I was ready to begin discussing my legal opinions, giving sermons, and teaching in the madrasa. Burhan Udin continued to guide me until he was confident I could take over. And when that day came, he left Konya for good. I was 30, but I had never been without a spiritual guide, so I was not happy with his decision. But he told me, there cannot be two suns in one sky. You are now ready to take over as professor. You stay here, and I will go back home. I had about 400 students, disciples maybe, who came from all over Anatolia to learn from me. My lessons included music and singing. And there was the whirling, which I believe connects the soul with God. There are many roads which lead to God. I have chosen the one of dance and music. Rich men and beggars sought me out. Christians and Jews followed me. There was something about Rumi's spirit that people found magnetic. His wit, his knowledge, and a vitality that bridged the human experience with something otherworldly. I began writing more. I wasn't a poet yet, but I was reaching for something. And that's when I found him. It was 1244. 
I was sitting with a stack of books, reading in a quiet spot next to a stream in Konya, when a man passed by and said hello. He asked what I was doing and I said, you wouldn't get it. It's something that can't be understood by the uneducated. Then the man picked up my books. What, what are you doing? Hey, hey, put those down! And threw them in the stream. I got up and pulled them out of the water. And to my absolute surprise, they were still dry. When I asked him what was going on, he said, You wouldn't get it. It's something that can't be understood by the educated. There are a number of varying accounts of this meeting, most of which involved the man presenting Rumi with a spiritual debate, which challenged Rumi and made him ecstatic. When he began to speak, I dropped everything. We immediately began an intense relationship. It was electrifying. For six months, we were never apart, talking the whole time. We hardly stopped to eat or drink. This man was Shamsi Tabrizi. He was nearly twice my age, and I became infatuated with him. He occupied my every thought. He was a master of Arabic literature and Islamic sciences. But more than that, he was a Sufi mystic of the highest order. He told me he had been praying for someone to endure his company, and a voice told him to seek me out. Rumi had been on a trajectory toward the life of an Islamic preacher, but this new intense relationship created such a dramatic change in Rumi that his disciples and his family became increasingly worried. Our relationship was... Well, it, it's not something I can explain. The modern world could not even begin to understand this kind of close, mystical relationship. There were rumors that my disciples resented charms, even threatened him for altering my spiritual circle. But he was showing me a new way to see the world. But in 1246, Shams left for Syria without warning. I was devastated. Why did he leave? My disciples had pushed him away, and I was incensed. They thought that with him gone, I would turn my attention to them but it only caused me to seclude myself in grief. So, they reconsidered. They sent a search party to Damascus to find him, and they apologized. And when he came back, I was overjoyed. Shams unlocked the poet inside me. He persuaded me not to simply include poetry and music in my spiritual practice, but to fully embrace them. He taught me that the spiritual heart is a gateway to a relationship with God, and all other relationships are gateways to a closer relationship with the Creator. Through my love for Shams, I was drawn into a deeper intimacy with God, and because of that, I began to unpack love. I looked for God. 
I went to a temple and I didn't find him there. Then I went to a church and I didn't find him there. Then I went to a mosque and I didn't find him there. Then finally, I looked in my heart and there he was. When I met Sharms, I was raw. Then through him, I became cooked. But a short time later, I was burnt. One night in 1248, I was speaking to Sharms when he was called to the back door. He walked out and was never seen again. I heard rumors that a group of my disciples and even one of my sons killed him. Some rumors say they only chased him away. I didn't know what to believe. I was devastated. Shams! Excuse me, sir. Uh, I'm looking for a, a man named Shamsi Tabrizi. Uh, have you seen him? I cut off my disciples who had been against Shams, and I gathered a group of my loyal disciples to travel with me to Damascus to find him. We didn't, and I was heartbroken. I made the journey again a few years later with no luck. I wept. This was the darkest period of my life. But just as the refugee crisis that defined my childhood would lead to opportunity, so would Sharms's disappearance. And so, if you are waiting for the part of my life story where the poetry begins, this is it. I began writing poetry to cope with Sharms's disappearance, and I never stopped. I spent the next 30 years of my life writing. My poems became a blend of the intuitive love for God that I found in Sufism, the legal codes of Sunni Islam, and the mystical thinking I learned from Shams. I believe now that if the purpose of Shams's arrival was to inspire me, then the purpose of his departure was to challenge me. I wrote my first collection, the Divani Shamsi Tabrizi. It's made up of 90 odes, 2,000 couplets, and 35,000 quatrains, all inspired by Shams. Inspired is an understatement. The Divan is four times as long as Homer's Odyssey. It is still considered one of the great works of Persian literature. I said, What about my eyes? He said, Keep them on the road. I said, What about my passion? He said, Keep it burning. I said, What about my heart? He said, Tell me what you hold inside it. I said, Pain and sorrow. He said, Stay with it. The wound is the place where the light enters you. My masterwork is the Masnavi, 
A Masnavi is a Persian form of poetry, an extensive poem consisting of rhyming couplets of indefinite length. My Masnavi is over 50,000 lines. It explores people's relationships with each other, themselves, and to God. It's sort of a companion piece to the Quran, a Persian Sufi interpretation with more than 2,000 direct references to the Qur'an. In the introduction, I call this work The Roots of the Roots of the Roots of Religion. I wrote it over 15 years. Well, I didn't actually write it. I dictated it as I whirled, my mind filling with God's love and my mouth expelling His grace. Love is the ark appointed for the righteous, which annuls the danger and provides a way of escape. Sell your cleverness and buy with bewilderment. Cleverness is mere opinion, bewilderment, intuition. And this is how I spent those final years of my life, dictating the Masnavi. But I left the last volume unfinished, I died when I was 66, back in 1273. Rumi's poetry has remained popular in the Muslim world for centuries. His Masnavi is considered one of the greatest mystical works in all of literature. And in recent years, his poetry has gained a following in the West. Since the 1980s, he's been one of, if not the, most popular poet in the United States. There exists a field beyond all notions of right and wrong. I will meet you there. This is a very famous verse of his. You can read it in his poem, A Great Wagon. Another place you can read it is tattooed on the right bicep of Brad Pitt. In fact, many of Rumi's verses have been boiled down to easily digestible New Age wisdom, and can be found on coffee mugs. You are not a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop. Bumper stickers. If you are irritated by every rub, how will you be polished? And mobile phone cases. These pains you feel are messengers. Listen to them. So... How did modern-day America learn about a 13th-century Persian poet? Apparently, there is someone named Oprah who thinks quite highly of me. She is a woman of great influence. My poetry is created for everyone. It is an expression of God's love. And God's love, like the sun shines on everyone. It's like I said, on the seeker's path, wise men and fools are one. In his love, brothers and strangers are one. Go on, drink the wine of the beloved. In that faith, Muslims and pagans are one. One of the criticisms of his newfound popularity is that the West tends to erase the Islam from Rumi's message. 
which suggests that Rumi was mystical in spite of Islam, not because of it. But Rumi scholars believe that to divorce Islam from his work would be a mistake. I am the servant of the Quran as long as I have life. I am the dust on the path of Muhammad, the Chosen One. If anyone quotes anything except this from my sayings, I am quit of him and outraged by these words. Soon after his death, Rumi's followers and his youngest son formed the Mevlevi order, the Whirling Dervishes, who continue to this day practicing Sufism by spinning to create a bridge with the divine, just as Rumi did some 750 years ago. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast, produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is director Dave Shumka, series producers Lauren Berkowitz and Michael Tanko Grand, co-producer Jody Camilleri, executive producers Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Dave Shumka. Story editing by Michael Tanko Grand. Rumi is played by Nicholas Kahn. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing and sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Additional editing by Dave Schumker. Sound engineered and recorded by Vaudeville Sound. Associate producer, Nessa Arif. Translation by Abdullah Al-Masalam. Research and fact-checking by Al Jazeera and Hojin Park. Script editing by Danilo Havaleshka. Hala Sudani is Al Jazeera's senior copy editor. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer of podcasts. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject.